Everything you watch on TV for the next five days until the election is really nothing. It's really just jibber-jabber. This is the realest thing you're going to hear, actually, until election day. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, November 3rd. Today, Tara Palmieri is here with the state of play on the midterm elections, which are just five days away. Should we trust the polls hinting at a Republican wave? And where does K Street think the political winds are blowing? Tara and I discuss. And later, Tina Wynn is here to talk about the dark squad, the MAGA inverse of AOC's squad of progressives in the House. If Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker, how will he reckon with the ultra-conservative members of his Republican caucus, like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Boebert? We hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. It's five days until Election Day, I think, although millions of people have already voted. Uh, nevertheless, we're joined today by Tara Palmieri, who is plugged in to what people in politics are talking about. Tara, before we get to the meat of the show today, what's the state of play with five days to go? What are people in Washington saying? What are people out in the state saying? Is this is this really a Republican wave, as the narrative is starting to suggest? Yeah, I think it's become a Republican tide, perhaps, rather than a wave. I think that it's going to be really tight. I don't know that we will have all the election results on Tuesday night. I think there could be a runoff in Georgia because um, Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, and Herschel Walker, the Republican, they would need to garner more than 50% of the vote. I don't know that's that's going to happen. But there's one thing that I'm going to be looking at on election night, and I would be happy you would correct me if you don't agree with me on this, Peter, because I know you are an astute watcher. But I'm really going to be looking at Pennsylvania. I feel like if we know decisively one way or another who wins that race, like by 9 p.m., I think we know if this is a wave or a tide or a standstill. Or maybe Democrats do okay. Even in the 2020, I think it took like three or four days for them to count all the votes in Pennsylvania. Obviously, it was weird. It was COVID, mail-in ballots, et cetera. But even if there's a decisive victory by Fetterman by two points or Oz by two points, I think you know which way, you know, New Hampshire is going to go at that point or possibly Arizona. I think Republicans will hold Ohio and North Carolina regardless. But I think it will tell you if in the Senate it will be a 51, 49, 51 being Republicans, 49 or vice versa, based on what happens in Pennsylvania. The way that they're spending money, the Democrats, I have to think that McCarthy might pick up more like 20 seats in the House, maybe more. As opposed to what? There was talk over the summer, like 15, 10, but that was like post-Dobbs, post-Inflation Reduction Act. The money that's being spent right now suggests that it could be a wave. I think it'll be a tide. I think it'll be close. And I think some races we won't know. We might not know who controls the Senate on Tuesday night. So one question I have about Republican momentum um, is based on my own failure as a journalist in 2020. I wrote two pieces for Vanity Fair for Ben Landy and John Kelly that I regret in the 2020 cycle. One of them was, though, toward the end of the election, polls, internal and public, 
were suggesting that Republicans were going to be sinking in places that Democrats didn't think they could win because Trump was so unpopular. And so Democrats started spending money on House districts in places like Kansas. And if you talk to people that work for the party committees or outside groups and they have a poll and it's internal poll and like as a reporter, you're like, oh man, that's that's some good intel. You want to write it up. And so I wrote this piece basically saying that like Biden and Democrats could push into traditionally red territories and win in places like Kansas and win and maybe win Texas, you know, whatever. Obviously, the results were different. Biden outperformed Democrats everywhere. People didn't like Trump, but that didn't mean that people were also ready to vote down ballot for Democrats. And you saw a lot of frontline Democrats either lose their seats or get scares. And so when I see Republicans now pushing into Democratic territory and like the Cook Political Report is moving races in like California and Illinois and New York, like blue states to toss up or like not as safe Democrat, you definitely starting to see like Republicans spending money in those places. You're starting to see Republicans going on background to reporters and say, this could be a red wave. Part of it's like a flex. Part of it's like smoke and mirrors. Like they're trying to project momentum because voters like to get on a bandwagon. Like there is a bandwagon effect, I think, in the closing weeks. Also, donors want to feel like they're giving money to something that's going to happen, right? Absolutely. That's a great point. The momentum has definitely shifted toward Republicans since August and even from a few weeks ago. I think polls close in Pennsylvania at eight o'clock and there's a law there that they can't count early and mail-in votes until starting on election day. And so we won't know for a few days. So yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to know on election night who controls the Senate. I've never felt comfortable predicting what's happening in, in these races because I think the polling is so off. It, it does start to feel like we're just guessing at this point based on gut and like a few quotes from people on the ground and what operatives are saying and polling. And who knows if polling is any good anymore because people don't answer their phones. And it feels like there's just more surprises than ever before. So if you ask me what's going to happen on election night, I'm probably going to sound like a fool on Wednesday. So I just think polling is messed up because of our communication, the way we use our phones. I think it's hard to reach minority voters. I think it's hard to like gauge interests. And this all means that everything you watch on TV for the next five days until the election is really nothing, is really just jibber jabber. This is the realest thing you're going to hear, actually, till election day. Truly. Let me ask you one thing, Tara, because you you wrote about this up on Puck to Eric Gardner. You had to talk back with Eric. It seems like the betting money, just based on their actions and what you're seeing in Washington on K Street and the corporate world, is that the big companies and, and the lobbying groups think that Republicans are going to take back at least the House and maybe the Senate. Yes. Why are you divining that? Well, you're just seeing that. I mean, I'm, I know some McCarthy aides are actively being recruited. That's Kevin McCarthy, who's like lady to be speaker. There's really no challenger to him right now. You see these like bushies, uh, like Tony Fratto, who was his deputy comms director, Sean McCarthy going to Goldman Sachs, Sean McCormick going to Chevron. And I believe there was another one who went to Truist. There's just a lot of movement of like publicans going into really big roles, PR, lobbying, et cetera. And, you know, they're willing to put their money down on the fact that if it's not a red wave now, the Senate map is looking good enough in 2024 
when there are a lot of blue dog Democrats, when there are a lot of blue dog Democrats like Kirsten Cinema, like Joe Manchin, who may want to retire or become, you know, governor of West Virginia or John Tester in Montana. It's just the map looks really good for Republicans in 2024. So why not just hire a bunch of Republicans now for those big jobs? Plus, they're probably going to take back the House. Oh, and by the way, if the Democrats have the Senate, it's only going to be by a seat. So why not just start hiring Republicans? It's coming. Unless they really F it up. That's the vibe on K Street. But that's been the vibe for a while. I did notice six months ago or seven months ago before the Dobbs decision that there were a lot of open Senate committee jobs for Democratic staffers. And that's usually another tell that Democrats think that they're going to lose the Senate. But then again, you know, Dobbs decision changed things. When I was talking to Republicans back then, they were thinking they were going to pick up seats like three or four seats. But maybe those staffers who have long gone to corporate world or K Street should have held on to those committee jobs. Any punditry that's guaranteeing to know what's going to happen is not to be trusted. So this is like one of those weeks where it's just like strap in, watch the rallies, nervously text your friends, doom scroll the internet. And remember, this probably won't be over on election night. Uh, It'll probably be over later that week or maybe beyond. Wait, wait, can I ask you something really quick, Peter? Is there anyone who like historically always gets it wrong, but yet everyone listens to you all the time in your mind? (laughs) I would have to sit down and go through all of my texts and emails with my friends to see who I've talked shit about for always being wrong. But um, I think the bottom line is that (laughs) the macro narrative, uh, whether it's on Twitter or cable news, is frequently wrong or partly wrong. So I just, you know, just wait till election day. I'm not trying to brag, but I'm going to brag. Why not? Who cares? I'll do it. Go for it. Brag. It's a podcast. (laughs) It's a bragcast. Going and seeing Liz Cheney, that Matt Gates rally, like right after her impeachment vote, I was, I wrote, I came back and was like, oh, it's over for her. And that was like a gut thing that I also had. Again, no numbers, just talking to people. That was it. And my gut says now a lot of this is going to be a draw. Okay. I'm glad you said that because I think the 2016 election especially was the moment where institutional Washington, media, politics, whatever, the trust of data and numbers crunching ran headlong into gut and what reporters were seeing on the ground. And the truth is somewhere in between. Totally. Well, if I don't talk to you before Election Day, Tara, I hope I do. Me too. Good luck. Thank you. When we come back, Tina Wynn is here to tell us if the GOP is now the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, here with an important pre-midterm update from our very own Tina Wynn. Hey, Tina. Hello. Tina, you and I were talking the other day about what we semi-jokingly referred to as the dark squad, sort of the inverse of what Trump called AOC plus three, the group of ultra-progressive women of color who came into Congress in 2018 and sort of lit up the democratic world with a combination of new energy, social media savvy. And in some ways, at least for a little while, they really did help to pull the party to the left, for better or for worse. And now what we've seen is that there's this sort of mirror image or anti-squad that has emerged on the right. A number of people who came into Congress in 2020, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, you can maybe throw into that mix guys like Matt Gates, who I think came a little bit earlier. I always thought of them as sort of too fringe, 
too marginal to be a real political force outside of the headlines they generated. But as you were explaining to me, well, well actually, these guys aren't going to be marginal if and when Republicans take back the House, which, which they very well may do next week. In some ways, they may actually become some of the most powerful voices in the new Congress. What does your reporting explain about what we're likely to see from the anti-squad, if you will? It's funny. I sort of came into the reporting focusing on that smaller group, but the more I reported on it, the more I'm like, wait a second, we're not really seeing dark squad here. We're seeing an actual populist revolt. There's going to be maybe like 40 or so MAGA-aligned Trumpist candidates who have beaten more establishment-backed candidates in their primaries, are poised to take over a ton of seats. And you add that to people who already exist in Congress, Green, Boebert, Gosar, Gates. There's going to be a real mandate to drag the party further to the right. And you didn't really see that with AOC and, and her crew, really. Like there were four members of the squad, maybe five or six. Occasionally they were able to go on stage and like hold up votes and wring some concessions out. But like they were in a solid minority. In this case, you have a ton of people sweeping in, not just into the House, but also in the Senate. And the next president, whether it's Trump or DeSantis, is going to be a populist. So there's a real mandate on the horizon and it is extremely MAGA. Right. So there's there's three dozen or so ultra MAGA candidates who are out there. McCarthy has been telling people he expects somewhere in the neighborhood of, say, 17 seats that Republicans think they're going to have in the majority after this election next week. Do you have a sense of how McCarthy is actually able to wrangle this caucus? I mean, presumably he does not want to see a repeat of what happened to John Boehner way back when, when he was just totally overrun by the House Freedom Caucus. So he actually spent a lot of his summer in this like goodwill tour with all of these MAGA candidates. And I know that there is a, uh, you know, incentive for Team McCarthy to be like, everything's fine, everyone's on board. But there is a genuine belief and there's a genuine like coming together in recognizing that all they really want to do is oppose the Biden agenda and the agenda that the Democrats holding both houses of Congress were trying to push over the past couple of years. The way that people put it was that like they are going to oppose Biden's agenda at every single turn that they can get. Will it be Ukraine? Yeah, there's going to be like a little bit of give and take on that. The blank check comment that McCarthy made to Punchbowl a while ago, I think that's 100% going to be it in top of line. He wants to immediately get rid of the 87,000 IRS agents that um, Biden put in. That's like massive in the minds of the Republican voters and the Republican movement. I would say more oversight, definitely more Hunter Biden stuff. And just having the Republicans in the negotiating room with like Biden and whoever holds the Senate, I think is going to either provide a lot of leverage and negotiating tactics or, you know, prompt Biden to write like 900 executive orders in the next couple of years. Yeah, it goes without saying that the Republicans are most likely going to retake the House. It's possible they'll also retake the Senate. But Biden's still in the White House, which means he can veto anything that is coming through Congress. And of course, the Democrats will be able to filibuster most of what happens in the Senate even if Republicans are able to align behind some legislation there. So the question is, 
you know, what does this policy agenda potentially look like if the MAGA wing of the party is in control? I mean, are they just sort of lodging these protest votes or are there real substantive things they can do at a, at a parliamentary level to enact their agenda or to get in the headlines? At this moment, there really isn't much they can do. They'll only for sure have one house of Congress and Biden can obviously stop them. And right now, I think the mandate of people who are voting them into power is literally stop whatever it is that Biden is doing because our lives suck now. As long as they can keep doing that, I think that's going to make them super popular. Here's a couple of things that I think they might want to enact somehow, probably stripping funding away from like gender affirming care, doing something regarding critical race theory in education, parent choice in schools, very culture war stuff. Probably like curtailing funding to Ukraine. They definitely want the border wall rebuilt. Uh, for MAGA people, that's a higher priority than it is for more establishment types. Uh, someone I spoke to who's a consultant told me that in his dream scenario, the Republican House would threaten a government shutdown if Biden didn't do something about the border. Even if Republicans can't get laws passed with control of Congress, there's certainly going to be a changing of the guard on these committees, which is a big deal. Do you have a sense of which of these dark squad members, MTG, Bobert, others, might end up having some of these plum committee assignments and, and what they might do with that power? Marjorie Taylor Greene is probably one of the most popular members of Congress among voters. She knows how to get attention, and I imagine that she would probably be on the oversight committee. That seems to be the prime place to put her, especially if they're going to launch an investigation into Hunter Biden. Could you imagine what that is going to look like? It's going to be explosive, and I think the Republicans know that, which is why they'd want to put her front and center. And in some ways, that might actually be the best outcome for Republicans, because there are some big legislative moments on the horizon. There is the debt ceiling that needs to be raised in 2023. We know that McCarthy is worried about doing that, that his own caucus might rebel, and that the GOP might then get blamed for any sort of ensuing economic catastrophe. There is a world in which allowing the MTGs of the world to fixate on Hunter Biden or something else might actually be the sort of best outcome economically for a country that really has so many headwinds at the moment and so many potential crises on the horizon. But Tina, Thanks for stopping by and explaining all this. It's um, it's fascinating as always. It's a little bit terrifying, but we're glad to have you here to make sense of it all. 80 day, 80 day. That's my life. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 